everyone, and welcome back to the program. Yesterday's testimony saw some very graphic and detailed explanations about what the investigators found when they were looking for Tylee and JJ. So before we even dive into this article, I just want to let you all know that it is a relatively graphic one. So just keep that in mind as we move forward today. Now, as for the testimony itself, we saw a full day of testimony given by Detective Ray Ermacillo and what he had to say about what him and other investigators found on this property is enough to make you want to throw up. So let's just dive right into this article and let's see what happened in the courtroom on Tuesday. This article was published by EastIdahoNews.com and the author of this article once again is Nate Eaton. Headline, Rexburg Police Detective Takes the Stand in the Lori Vallow Daybell Trial. So what we're going to do is just like with the first one, we're going to split this into two parts. We'll do the morning session, and then after the morning session, the afternoon session will be the next episode directly after this one. 8.25 a.m. Back in the courtroom. Lori is sitting between her attorneys, dressed in a pink blouse. She's wearing black-rimmed glasses, smiling, very chatty with Jim Archibald and John Thomas. The first witness today will be Rexburg Police Department Detective Ray Ermacillo. 8.35 a.m. Larry Woodcock is here in the courtroom with some family members, but Kay Woodcock is absent. 8.39 a.m. I'm told there are 16 people watching the trial in the Madison County Courthouse room this morning. 8.40 a.m. John Pryor, Chad Daybell's attorney, is in the courtroom again this morning. We are waiting for the jurors to be brought in. 8.42 a.m. Judge Stephen Boyce has entered the courtroom. Prosecutors Rob Wood, Rachel Smith, and Lindsay Smith are here. 8.48 a.m. Jurors are brought in. Detective Armasillo is sworn in. 8.49 a.m. Armasillo has been a detective for four years and has been with RPD for 22 years. He worked on patrol as a patrol supervisor, and he says he became involved in the investigation on November 1st when he was contacted by the Fremont County Sheriff's Office that there was a Jeep in Rexburg that was possibly involved in a homicide. And we also heard from Brandon Boudreaux about how he got fired on from a Jeep as well. So once again, a Jeep rears its ugly head. Who owned a Jeep, by the way? 8.51 a.m. Armasillo contacted Gilbert Police about the Jeep, and they asked him to conduct surveillance on Lori Daybell's apartment on Pioneer Road. They observed Chad and Lori, but they never saw a teenage girl or a young boy with Lori. Yeah, that's not suspect or anything, huh? A mom that's never seen with her children as the police are performing surveillance on the house? 8.52 a.m. Hermosillo says police seized the Jeep on November 4th from the residence. Gilbert police came to Rexburg on November 18th to serve a warrant on the Jeep data information system. That is when Hermosillo first heard about J.J. and Tylee. RPD was told J.J.'s grandmother was concerned that she had not heard from J.J. in a while and police in Arizona were going to check if he was down there. So, obviously, as a police officer, getting this information after you're being told to perform surveillance on a Jeep that might have been involved in a homicide is probably pretty concerning, right? 8.54 a.m. 
On November 25th, the Gilbert detective contacted Hermosillo and said they could not find J.J. Kay Woodcock asked for a welfare check on J.J. The next morning, Hermosillo and Detective Hope from RPD went to Lori's house. They saw Chad Daybell and Alex Cox unloading a pickup. Hermosillo walked up to Alex and asked if Lori was home and Alex said Lori was not there. Armacio said he was there to do a welfare check on JJ. Alex looked at him with a blank look. He looked scared, and then Alex looked at Chad. Chad and Alex did not say anything. Armacio became suspicious, and he again asked Alex where JJ was. Alex said JJ was with Kay in Louisiana, and Armacio said that wasn't possible, as Kay was the one who asked for the welfare check. Now, as an experienced police officer, you have to be getting the willies here. These people are saying that this child or these children are with their grandparents, and their grandparents are the ones who initiated this whole entire welfare check to begin with? So yeah, right away, your spidey sense has to be tingling. 8.58 a.m. Hermosillo asked if Alex had Lori's phone number. Alex said he did not, which Hermosillo did not believe. Armacillo and Hope knocked on Lori's door, but nobody answered. He and Hope began knocking on other doors, and Armacillo observed Chad leaving in his Chevy Equinox. Armacillo stopped him and asked Chad when was the last time he saw JJ. Chad said it was October in apartment 107 with Lori Vallow. Armacillo asked Chad how he knew Lori. Chad responded he hardly knew her and said they had only met a couple of times. So still, even after, they went out and got married in front of everybody, basically. Bought themselves some nice Malachite rings on Charles Vallow's dime, by the way. They're still out here acting like they don't know each other? 9 a.m. Hermosillo knew Chad was lying because police were aware Chad and Lori had recently got married. Hermosillo asked Chad for Lori's phone number, and he said he didn't have it. Eventually, Chad gave Hermosillo the number and said he originally didn't provide it because he thought Hermosillo was accusing him of something. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure it had nothing to do with wanting to keep the plot hidden for as long as possible. 9.01 a.m. Hermosillo called Detective Ron Ball and said he was concerned about J.J.'s whereabouts. Other detectives were called and they began knocking on doors at the complex. Ball told Hermosillo to go to the prosecutor's office for a search warrant while the other officers stayed on scene to wait for Lori, Alex, or Melanie Boudreaux. 9.03 a.m. Police did not get a warrant that day because Lori returned Detective Hope's call and agreed to open the door to talk with Detective Ball and Detective Stubbs. They were wearing body cameras that recorded the interaction. 9.05 a.m. Hermosillo begins to describe what he saw on the body camera footage but Thomas objects and says it's hearsay. Attorneys are now in a sidebar conference with the judge. Sidebars are private and white noise is played in the courtroom so nobody can overhear what is said. And you'll see that happen quite a bit throughout a trial. You'll have one of the lawyers, either the prosecutor or the defense lawyer, ask for a sidebar with the judge to talk about something so the jury can't hear what's going on. 9.10 a.m. Wood back to questioning Armacillo. The detective says he contacted a Gilbert police detective late that evening and said they still did not know where J.J. was. Another detective then reached out to Melanie Gibb to see if J.J. was with her. Gibb said he was not, 
And this is when the whole entire house of cards really began to fall for Chad Dumbbell and Lori Vallow. 9.12 a.m. The next morning, November 27th, police obtained a search warrant for the apartments of Lori, Alex, and Melanie P. They started with Lori's and had to break down the front door. There were couches, dishes in the sink, food in the pantry, food in the refrigerator, bed and toiletries were upstairs. Everything that looked like somebody had lived there, except there were no clothes on any of the hangers. All of the hangers were empty. Nobody was in the apartment, and apartment 107 was completely empty. They knew the jig was up, and it was time to get out of Dodge and try and hide from what they had done. 9.14 a.m. Police found a few toys and items belonging to J.J., including a prescription medication. They also found several guns in the garage of apartment 175, several army-type knives, several empty magazines for various weapons. There were things of that nature in the garage that caught our eye. So why would, it, why would you just leave all of that stuff? Who leaves guns when they move out of their place? Just leave them in the garage and take off? Or is that somebody who is getting out of Dodge because they know that the next time somebody knocks on their door, it's probably going to be a SWAT team? 9.16 a.m. Hermosillo says that in apartment 175, they found a rental agreement for a storage unit in Rexburg. Police obtained a search warrant for the storage unit. And you can see that warrant right here in the article. There's a link to it. 9.20 a.m. State asked to admit into evidence images of the apartment complex and interior photos taken the day the search warrant was executed. The pictures are admitted. 9.22 a.m. The first photo is the exterior of Lori's apartment. The second photo is the front room of apartment 175. Looking into the living room and dining room area. The next photo shows the living room area going upstairs. The next photo is of a Star Wars suitcase with three to five preparedness bags with emergency kits. 9.25 a.m. The next photo was taken looking down the stairs. The next photo is the master bedroom. The next photo is the master bedroom closet with all of the empty hangers in the closet. No clothes, just a towel hanging on the back door. Normally, when people go on trips and plan to come home, they don't take all of their belongings from the closet. This caught our attention because there was nothing in the closet other than empty hangers. No, of course not. If you go on vacation, you take enough gear for the vacation. You don't take all of your clothes unless you're on the run or you're moving somewhere, and obviously they weren't moving anywhere. So if the police were suspicious before, they were sold now. 9.27 a.m. The next photo is another bedroom with some of Alex Cox's belongings. His name was on a plastic tub in the closet. In another room was some hazmat-looking white suits lying on the floor. A tub on the closet had Alex Cox's belongings. And then that rental agreement, like I said, there's a picture of it right here in the article. So if you don't want to click on the link, you can just read it right here. 9.30 a.m. Hermosillo is now being shown images of the contract Lori signed with the storage unit company. Lori signed her name as Lori Ryan. 9.32 a.m. Hermosillo is now being shown images of items found in Lori's garage. The photos are admitted into evidence. 9.35 a.m. First image shows items in a garage that were taken out of a tub. 
There is a ghillie camouflage suit laid out on the ground. And that's one of those outfits that like a sniper would wear in war, you know, where they throw it over them like a net and it looks like they have, you know, trees on them or bushes or whatever. And then they can hide basically in plain sight wearing a ghillie suit so that they can acquire and then execute their target. Police also found gun magazines and silencers to put on the end of a gun to keep it quiet when it's fired. And remember, Brandon Boudreaux said he saw the silencer poke out of that truck. 9.38 a.m. Second image shows clothing laid out on the ground. Third image shows several rounds of ammunition that was discovered in a tub. A lot of ammunition in that specific tub, Hermosillo says. Fourth image shows a rifle round found in the garage and the barrel is threaded for a silencer. Fifth image shows the same rifle laid down on the table at the police department. Another rifle was inside the same bag. 9.39 a.m. Next image shows two silencers found inside the garage. Next image shows knives that were found near the rifles. Next image shows a handgun found in the tub in the garage. Next image is a Halloween mask that was found on top of a plastic Walmart bag. Inside the bag was rope and duct tape. Next image shows Alex Cox's passport found inside the garage. 9.42 a.m. Next image shows documents found inside Lori's garage. There were emails from Chad Daybell. As Irma Cio is reviewing the evidence, Lori is taking notes. 9.43 a.m. Wood shows an image that displays more emails from Chad Daybell, along with another photo showing books written by Chad that were also found in the garage. The final photo is a cell phone found in the garage. 9.45 a.m. After serving the search warrant, Hermosillo says RPD contacted the FBI and were trying to get a hold of Lori and Chad. Police contacted Colby Ryan, who told them he had not spoken to his sister in a while. The search for JJ now included the search for Tylee. Hermosillo says Chad and Lori's phones were shut off. Obviously, they were trying to hide. They know what they did here, and they knew that there was no way they were going to get away with it at this point. Melanie Gibb, well, she wasn't playing ball with them. And the police, they were hot on their trail at this point. 9.46 a.m. Hermosillo says he contacted family members who would take their calls to try and find the kids. He says Lori Vallow never called the police about her missing children. On December 11th, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children were contacted and RPD entered JJ and Tylee's names as missing and endangered children. Now, how is it that everybody in the world is looking for your kids and you're strolling around in Kauai? Can you please answer that question, Lori Vallow? And as a juror, you know they're all going to be... Police set up a tip line and issued a news release on December 20th, 2019 about the missing children. 9.52 a.m. Hermosillo says through his investigation, police used cell phone data and tips to determine Chad and Lori were in Kauai. Hermosillo and other officers went to Hawaii to assist Kauai police in issuing a court order on January 25th of 2020. RPD also assisted Kauai police in issuing a search warrant on Daybell's rental vehicle and their condo. 9.55 a.m. Hermosillo says the interior of the condo appeared as if two adults lived there. There were no toys or kids' medication or clothes inside the apartment. Hermosillo said nothing indicated children had been living there. 
Now, how in the hell could this monster put her head down on that pillow every night knowing what happened to her children? It's simply unconscionable for me. 9.57 a.m. Hermesio says the last date he is aware of proof of life of Tylee Ryan is from September 8th, 2019, based on a photo of her in Yellowstone. Last date of proof of life for JJ is September 22nd, 2019, based on a photo of JJ sitting on a couch in Lori's front room. Court is now taking a 15 to 20 minute morning break. 10.20 a.m. Back from the morning break. Lori was walked in wearing leg shackles and then a deputy locked the shackles to the floor in the courtroom so she cannot leave the table. Well, that's weird. What, was she going to get up and wild out? 10.20 a.m. Hermesio remains on the stand. He is handed four photos of the Jeep that the state wants to admit as evidence. 10.23 a.m. First photo is the gray Jeep Wrangler. Second photo shows the rear view of the Jeep with Texas plates. Third photo shows the interior of the Jeep taken from the driver's door. Fourth photo shows the interior of the Jeep from the passenger's side. 10.28 a.m. Wood asked to have a business document from Apple related to an iCloud account admitted as evidence. 10.33 a.m. Armacillo says he has reviewed the iCloud account and says it belongs to Lori Vallow based on the photos and records contained in the account. 10.35 a.m. Wood asked to admit a photo of J.J., Tylee, and Alex in Yellowstone Park. He also asked to admit a photo of J.J. on the couch in Lori's apartment. And this photo is haunting, folks. He's wearing that red pajama outfit that he was found in. You know, he was found in the red pajamas, and they say that this is the outfit that he was wearing. And every single time I see a picture of these kids, the rage continues to build within me. 10.40 a.m. Hermesio recounts what happened the morning of June 9th, 2020. Police went to Chad's house, and Chad's son Mark opened the door. He said his dad was still asleep. Officers went to Chad's room, he sat up in the bed, and officers said there were, they were there to serve a search warrant. Chad got dressed and then walked downstairs with police into the kitchen. So remember, this monster, he had kids already with his first wife, Tammy, that they're also accused of killing. And now imagine being his kids. Talk about never wanting to see your dad again. 10.42 a.m. Chad asked to call his attorney, who at the time was Mark Means. Chad called Mark, and police went into the front room with Chad, where they served him with the warrant. Chad asked if he needed to leave. Police said he did not, but if he left, an officer would need to accompany him for safety reasons. Oh yeah, safety reasons. Safety that he didn't run away. That's the safety reason they're talking about. 10.43 a.m. Chad went outside to his car to make a call. The FBI and other law enforcement officers arrived to help execute the search warrant. Personal note. It was around this time I received a tip that something was happening at Chad's house. I made some calls and was in a helicopter an hour later. 10.46 a.m. Hermesio says Chad was looking over his shoulder while he was in the car on the phone. Hermesio said he looked where Chad was looking and saw the tree and pond in the backyard area. So a lot of these detectives, they're pretty shrewd. And they're going to play the old okey-doke on you if they suspect you of being involved one way or the other. And they're going to watch all of your behaviors, all of your movements, and hopefully you have some sort of tell that leads them to the jackpot. 
10.48 a.m. Hermesillo was assigned to sift through the area around the fire pit. While we were sitting and sifting through the fire pit, there were a lot of people going to the pond area under the tree, so we were called over to assist in that location, he says. 10.50 a.m. Wood asked to admit a Google Earth image of Chad Daybell's property so the jury can have an idea of the layout. 10.52 a.m. As Wood shows the image to the jury, Lori is taking notes and occasionally looks up at the jurors. 10.54 a.m. Hermesillo says he went over to the tree pond and there was a section of shorter grass and dirt compared to the rest of the area that had longer grass. A team began excavating the section by removing the top layer of soil. As they began to remove the top layer of soil, it exposed three large rocks. At that point, there was a strong odor that, through my training, I knew was a decomposing body. 10.56 a.m. After the rocks were removed, there were pieces of large wood paneling. The team started to brush away damp soil that was a different composition compared to the soil on top of the ground. As the soil was being removed, police saw a black round object starting to protrude through the dirt. And whenever you have different kinds of soil in the same hole and you're conducting an investigation looking for a body, it's usually telling you that you're on the right track. 10.58 a.m. As police scraped away more dirt, they discovered a round object that appeared to be the crown of a head. Police continued to remove soil and Hermesillo says they appeared to find a small body wrapped in plastic. 11 a.m. Police made a slit in the plastic and there appeared to be human hair. At this point, officers were told Chad was leaving his daughter's house across the street at a high rate of speed. Officers followed Chad, pulled him over, and took him into custody. Where did he think he was going to go? There was basically the whole entire FBI agency at his house, along with local police. Did he really think he was going to get in his car and just drive away into the sunset? Why didn't he call on the power of his God? 11.01 a.m. Hermesillo went back to the burial site after Chad was taken into custody and the small body wrapped in plastic was put in a body bag. It was then placed in the coroner's vehicle and driven to the morgue by the Fremont County coroner and a Fremont County deputy. Hermesillo and Detective Ball followed the vehicle. 11.03 a.m. The body was dropped off. Hermesillo and Ball returned to Chad's house. Hermesillo is now pointing out on a map where the body in plastic was found and where the fire pit was. 11.05 a.m. Hermesillo says when he arrived back at Chad's property, police were digging in the area of the pet cemetery. In digging down, they located items of interest that we needed to slow down and dig more methodically. Hermesillo says that they then got on their hands and knees and began digging around this moist section of dirt. 11.07 a.m. We started finding burnt flesh, decomposing bones, the smell was so bad, we had to take turns digging, Hermesillo says. Eventually, we uncovered bits and pieces of Tylee, whom we assumed was Tylee, that had been burned. There were pieces of bone, charred flesh, just gobs of flesh that were falling apart. Yo, that is some gruesome, disgusting, horrifying shit right there. And if something like this doesn't deserve the death penalty for Chad Daybell, I don't know what does. 11.09 a.m. Hermesillo says more burnt flesh and bone was found in a green bucket that had melted. It was kind of deformed and the flesh and bone was all kind of stuffed in that melted bucket. Lori looks at Hermesillo 
and shows no emotion as he testifies. Well, that's because she's a monster. I mean, what else could it be? 11.10 a.m. Armacillo says each detective could only work for a few minutes at a time because the smell was so bad. Police then uncovered a human skull and they worked to put all the pieces into a body bag. 11.11 a.m. Police stopped working as it was getting too late. So they secured the scene with crime scene tape and officers stood guard at the property all night. Large lights were brought in from the fire department to keep the scene illuminated. The search continued the next day on June 10th of 2020. 11.13 a.m. Tylee's remains were put in a body bag and taken to the morgue at Madison Memorial Hospital. Jurors listening intently, some taking notes. 11.14 a.m. J.J. and Tylee's remains were then taken to the Ada County Coroner's Office. There are currently no places in eastern Idaho for autopsies to be conducted, so the bodies are often transported to Ada County. 11.17 a.m. Wood asked for photos taken from Daybell's property the day of the search to be admitted as evidence. 11.24 a.m. First image shows the front of Daybell's home with a vehicle parked in the driveway. Second photo shows the fire pit where Tylee's remains were found, including burnt bone fragments and teeth. A third image shows the tree where JJ's body was found buried. 11.30 a.m. A fourth image shows the grassy area where JJ was buried. One section has longer grass, the other area is shorter. The fifth image shows topsoil over JJ's burial site. Sixth image shows three large white rocks on top of wood paneling that was on top of JJ's body. The next image shows wood paneling after rocks were removed. And the pictures tell a story to the jurors, right? They can tell that this was a process. This was something that was created. It wasn't a natural occurrence in the ground for there to be the wood structures and all the rest of it. So somebody actively was trying to hide this body. And that somebody was Chad Daybell, and Lori Vallow, according to the government. 11.33 a.m. Next photo is moist soil after the wood paneling was removed. You can also see black plastic coming through the dirt. The next image shows plastic around the area believed to be where J.J.'s head was. There was white plastic under the black plastic, and the next image shows where police cut the plastic, exposing human hair. 11.36 a.m. Next image shows black plastic wrapped around a body buried in the ground. Hermosillo says he helped lift the body out of the burial site. 11.38 a.m. Next image shows moist soil after the body was removed. Hermosillo says it shows fluid from body decomposition. Nothing else was buried in the area. Lori appears to show no emotion during any of the photo presentations. 11.40 a.m. Attorneys are now having a sidebar conference with the judge. Jurors are standing to stretch their legs. It's now understandable why Kay Woodcock decided not to come this morning. We are headed into a lunch break until 1245. So yeah, if I was Kay Woodcock, I wouldn't want to come and see these pictures either, to be honest with you. Just reading through it is horrifying. So I could definitely see why Kay Woodcock wouldn't want to be there for that one. As for this episode, that is going to do it for part one. We're going to pick up after the recess with part two and finish it out. All of the information that goes with the episode can be found in the description box.